0: Welcome to the Water Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Bridget Scanlon, from the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin. This podcast is produced in partnership with the National Academy of Engineering. In this podcast, we discuss water challenges with leading experts. Today, I would like to introduce Dr. Chris Funk, our guest on the podcast. Chris is the director of the Climate Hazards Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and he's a lead scientist with the Famine Early Warning System Network and also published a book this past year titled Drought, Flood, Fire, How Climate Change Contributes to Recent Catastrophes. So we're delighted to have Chris chatting with us today. And Chris, I think it would be great to start off with your recent blog posts and everything on the Eastern Horn of Africa and maybe a little bit of background on the Famine Early Warning System Network, Fusenet, and what you think is happening in East Africa these days and what the outlook looks
1: like. Thanks, Bridget. Yeah, so maybe I'll start with the back in 1984 which was the year of a terrible famine in Ethiopia and Sudan, where more than a a million people died. And, you know, this was a really huge travesty. And in response to that, the U.S. government and the U.S. Agency for International Development set up the Famine Early Warning Systems Network, which has been a really important part of preventing a catastrophe of that magnitude from reoccurring. And a lot of those, a lot of that monitoring efforts that they focused on have been in East Africa because that's a very food insecure and poor area that is really exposed to both extreme droughts you know, and extreme flooding events. And in the last... Say six or seven years, it's been really hammered by uh, a series uh, of intense shocks. And that began in 2015 16 when a really strong El Nino event, which is when the Eastern Pacific is exceptionally warm, produced a severe drought in northern Ethiopia, helping to, to push some 15 million people into extreme food insecurity. And then we transitioned to uh, La Niña climate, which is associated with really cold ocean temperatures in the Eastern Pacific and warm temperatures in the Western Pacific. And there was a sequence of repetitive droughts in East Africa that pushed another 13 million people into extreme food insecurity. And then in the spring of 2019, there was another drought for reasons that we don't really understand. And and then there was a well-known climate phenomenon called a positive Indian Ocean dipole, which is, this one was really exceptional. It was, you know, had the warmest ever ocean waters off the coast of Kenya and Somalia. And those brought in really intense moisture transports. And we had extreme flooding, both in the fall and then into the next March, April, May season. And that helped kick off this big locust infestation, the worst locust infestation in 70 years. And that was a a big problem for a a lot of farmers. And then we transitioned in the summer of 2020 into uh, a La Nina-like climate, which has persisted now, you know, since the fall of 2020 and, That's created repetitive droughts in eastern East Africa that as far as we can tell are unprecedented as far back as the record goes to 1950. And it's had just incredible impacts in terms of food insecurity. Um, In Ethiopia, Kenya and Somalia, more than 9.3 million livestock have died. And something like between 19 to 23 million people are expected to face really extreme food insecurity, you know, kind of on the edge of famine. And frankly, it's, you know, we're very concerned about actual famine breaking out.
0: So it's a sequence of uh, wet and dry cycles, you know, but I mean, long-term droughts and then flooding periods, and both are catastrophes for the food security because, I mean, they're really, there's very little irrigated agriculture in those regions. And so they're really vulnerable to the climate. And I think that's, what's emphasized there. And, and you're discussing the connections then with the, the climate teleconnections or El Niño, La Niña and things like that. So that's really cool. So what does it look like now and, and coming up in the in the near future? What do you think the forecasts are telling you or what is, do the data it, suggest?
1: The, the forecast looks really tragically like a perfect ocean for drought. And, you know, we've been discussing the kind of two most important climate drivers for for east africa are el ninos and la ninas which have to do with the pacific ocean and then the indian ocean dipole which has to do with the indian ocean and whether it's warm in the west or in the east and the the perfect ocean for drought for east africa is when you have a la nina associated with cool east pacific temperatures and negative Indian Ocean dipole associated with cold waters to the east of Kenya and Somalia. And then in the Indo-Pacific warm pool, which is kind of that area where the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean meet, the forecast models are predicting really, really exceptionally warm ocean conditions. And what that does is amplify the Walker circulation, which basically uh, is drawing in moisture and heat into the area around indonesia that gets rainier than normal the air ascends and then goes to the west and descends over ethiopia kenya and somalia and so you know we're just about to, to post a blog uh, in partnership with our colleagues at nasa saying that we think it's very likely that this region is going to experience a fifth drought and not just a fifth drought, but probably a very dry fifth drought. And, you know, something that you can appreciate, Bridget, there's kind of two pieces of this. One thing is that the water in the soil has really been depleted. And so the hydrologic simulations from our friends at NASA are showing that even if the rains are normal, the soil moisture conditions are still going to be below normal. And then our group here at Santa Barbara is contributing, you know, kind of analog analysis that's showing that because the models are predicting, you know, a strong gradient Niña and a really negative in the ocean dipole, that we think the likely outcome is going to be a very, very poor rainy season. So you have kind of both of those things convolving.
0: And so and so that's for October, November. There are two rainy seasons in the eastern Horn of Africa, right? So October, November, yeah. December, and March, April, May. So this this October, November, December will be very dry. What about March, April, May next year? Do you have forecasts for that also?
1: Yeah. So the paper that I'm working on right now. Well, so let's begin with the statistics. So the the statistics say that that since the western pacific warmed up following the 1997-98 el nino there have been 12 la nina events which is a lot right almost every other year and whenever there's been a la nina condition in october november december 75 percent of the time there's been below normal march april may rains the following season and this is the piece of the puzzle that we think is really tied to climate change. And so I've been just working feverishly on this uh, because it's so potentially important. And and what that research is really showing, I I think in a very convincing way, is that when there's a La Nina, let's say that it's October and there's a La Nina condition, You know, we know that that amplifies the trade winds over the Pacific, you know, which is the most steady, energetic, persistent set of winds in the tropics, right? And those blow more strongly to the west, that transports more heat out of the eastern Pacific, and then it turns in the subtropical gyre, right, and moves up into the north Pacific and the southern Pacific and creates warming in this area that I call the Western V, which kind of starts in Indonesia and radiates to the Northeast and the Southeast and produces La Niña-like climate, even if there's no longer a La Niña. And so that that pattern continues to amplify the treatments, even if La Niña fades and brings in heat and moisture, into the area around Indonesia, amplifying the walker circulation in a very predictable way. And this can explain why then there's subsidence and reductions in moisture in East Africa very often following a wooden D lightning October, November, December lightning.
0: Right. And so when we have drought in East Africa, then, so we oftentimes have rainy seasons in in Australia and and, and all linked to the sea surface temperature. So your understanding of these sea surface temperature effects and your ability to forecast has advanced tremendously in the past decade, right? I mean, we had drought in 2011 in Somalia, nearly a quarter of a million people died but since then, you have more cooperation among agencies, and you really have moved forward in your ability to forecast. And now you can forecast up to six months ahead of time, which gives the agencies opportunity to address some of these issues and to be prepared.
1: That's right. It's right. It's, and it's It's really exciting in terms of how quickly we're advancing as a scientific community on these fronts. In a way, I, I, I think it's a relatively simple combination of three things one is just you know decades of research into the indian ocean dipole and la niña's and el niño's i mean these are these are you know things that we're familiar with and then you know i think it's the ability of the climate models to predict these things pretty darn well in part because they were developed to predict things like El Nino's and La Nina's, right? So they're really good at it. But then I think the third thing is an appreciation that climate change is producing, you know, very frequent extreme states and that these models can capture. And I, I think that that needs to be a filter by which we interpret these results. And so you know, if you combine those three things, you know, it's in a way it's relatively easy to do the work that we do here at the center, you know? And I think the fourth thing is that now there's, I think a growing recognition of that potential. Um, and I think a good example of that would be in June of 2020, I sat down and used techniques that we had done in the past to predict the October, November, December rains with observed sea surface temperatures. So we had used that to predict the drought back in 2016. But I, you know, in 2016, I had done that forecast in September, and now I sat down in June with the climate model forecasts, and I was like, "Holy moly!" You know, you can you can look at scatter plots of this stuff, right? I mean, so you can know if you know. And I was like, "Gosh, this looks like you know we're getting good R squared values, and it looks bad." And so, you know, we posted uh, a blog post and shared it with FuseNet. And they factored this to their food security outlooks, but that was a relatively small ripple, right? I mean, it was it was good, but then three more droughts happened, all of which we predicted. And at the same time, you know, we were engaging with our partners, World Food Program, FAO, the Food Security Nutrition Working Group, the WMO. You know, all these different groups to try to work together to raise awareness of these events. And so when this May, right, we saw forecasts coming out of the climate models that looked like they were predicting a La Nina and anticipating in yet another bad season in East Africa, something like 14 agencies collaborated and within a week put out an alert saying, hey, this La Nina-like forecast is problematic for East Africa and a drought is likely. And that's that's pretty stunning, right? I mean, well, that's it's
0: extremely powerful to get all of these agencies to collaborate. And, and then you have people looking at different aspects. You have people looking at conflict, you have people looking at the food production and, uh, you know, all aspects. So it's great to have that collaborative network and to be working together. And I think that's what evolved from the early famines and realizing that nobody could be a lone ranger and you had to, to work together. And it gives people confidence, In those forecasts, uh, you know, when they see so many agencies behind them and they're all motivated then and trying to address the issues. So that's really great. And you mentioned earlier, you know, you work with NASA. And so I think what's nice about your work also is that you are using data from a bunch of different scales. You're using satellite data and ground based data, and you developed long term records so you can understand where these recent droughts fit in terms of what you've seen in the past and how severe they're going to be. I mean, I see some posts where you say, this is the worst drought in 70 years, like you were saying, since the 50s. And, you know, it's really nice to have that context. So maybe you can describe a little bit about the different data sources that you pull together and your collaboration with NASA and other groups.
1: Sure, yeah, I'd love to do that. And, And by the way, Bridget, to plug another book, a lot of which is freely available, you know, I have a book on drought early warning. Huh. And and actually most of that is copyright free because I wrote it as a government employee. So anyway, for, for students or whatever, that's kind of a primer on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah, and so, you know, one of the things that that we do at the Climate Hazard Center is, is kind of think strategically about how to do early warning systems. And so, you know, a, a really important, aspect of that is that we want to try to take advantage of multiple sources of information. And, you know, we tend to think about that in a staged early warning uh, framework. There's a computer science term called defense in depth, which is kind of you know similar. It's like the idea that, you know, if you want to, you know, make your computer system secure, or your castle secure, you don't just have like one door, right, you have multiple chances. And so Maybe I can, I can kind of work backwards from a famine and explain it. So, you know, if we have uh, a famine, you know, that's preceded. Ironically, famines typically happen just before the next harvest. Right. So, if, you know, if the crop fails, then people have some food and then the food runs out and the hunger is the greatest just before the next harvest. And so there is this sort of lag And, you know, a big part of the meat and potatoes work that we do for famine prevention, you know, is monitor crop failures. And you can do that using satellite observed vegetation, hydrologic simulations. And my personal specialty is providing precipitation data sets. And furthermore, precipitation data sets that are really well suited to putting current water deficits in historic context, you know, so that you can say like, this is the worst drought in 70 years. And, you know, there's a lot that goes into getting the best available station data, combining it with satellite estimates that are very homogeneous and consistent and high resolution climatologies. And so that's a big part of what we do here at the center. And that's that's very valuable. And then, then you can go, I guess, with even more early warning where we have weather forecasts of precipitation, which are, are really quite skillful, you know, and then you can go even further back with kind of climate outlooks like we started off discussing and we want to use all of those tools. And, you know, it's kind of like playing golf, right? You might you start <laughs> with a driver and end up with a you know, putter, you know, so that you can have different tools at different times in the season.
0: Well, it's great to have the collaborative network also, which has evolved over time and that Fusenet allows, you have the U.S. Geological Survey, you've got NASA, you've got a whole bunch of agencies, you have USDA, Department of Agriculture, and all of these different groups working together. And I noticed on the web that, you know, the USAID is putting forward like $1.3 billion in funding for famine and uh, food security issues in East Africa. And... Uh, the World Bank is putting forward like 2.3 billion for East and South Africa.
1: Um, I hadn't seen that. Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I think, it, you know, it really helps to have this collaborative network and so that people have confidence in the forecasts and and know that they're looking people are looking at them from a variety of different standpoints and then that the agencies are responding and uh, providing the funding then for these emergencies and stuff and hopefully some also goes into longer term sustainability issues I know food is not your bag, but uh, I mean, I think uh, the Ukraine issues also are probably exacerbating some of the issues in East Africa now because they used to import wheat and stuff and that's not helping. But also the World Food Program provides food in these areas that are vulnerable. but. I, I was talking to some people and they said the World Food Programme works with providing food from local regions if they can access it. And And I think what's nice, what's interesting about that and your precipitation forecasting is that you see large differences between North Ethiopia and South Ethiopia responding to different climate teleconnections, uh, El Niño or La Niña. And so so when you have food insecurity in South Ethiopia, you might have an excess in, in North Ethiopia or You know, people used to talk a lot in the past about East Africa versus South Africa, you know, that dipole and responding to different El Nino conditions. So that helps with the food security issues too.
1: Yeah, 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 you know, and yeah, for sure. You know, you could certainly imagine a Sub-Saharan African future where you had much better roads, much better green storage, much better water storage, you know, better market policies, you know, I think, I think Tanzania's exports are are shut off, I think. So, you know, so there's a, a policy aspect to this, too. So it's not just, you know, could you ship food, but will you ship food? But you can imagine, you know, a future where markets and trade, you know, could really smooth out a lot of these local or regional kind of climate impacts.
0: Yeah, Right. And and what you were describing uh, for East Africa, the eastern horn of Africa, also extends into the Yemen region, right? I mean, a lot of, or does it? Not really? Yeah. No.
1: It, it, it extends into this. There's a, a, a smaller rainy season in March, April, May. And I think it does bear some impact on that. Their main rainy season comes in the summer.
0: Okay. And
1: I haven't studied that one
0: and, and I, what I like about the FuseNet website and stuff that you also consider conflict issues. And, and so you're really trying to understand what the causes of the food insecurity, water insecurity and other issues are and considering a lot of different factors, because you need to understand those if you're going to try to resolve the issues. And so working in these large groups helps you address many different topics. I mean, I think we have a parallel in, in the U.S. with many of the things that you're doing. I mean, I think the U.S. Drought Monitor brings together a lot of different data types and data sources and stuff. And, and it's fantastic to look at that when we're in drought, you know, and look at the time series. And you're living in California where you, you see these, you know, droughts and floods and stuff. And, and so having that data, those data are very valuable And then you mentioned, you know, maybe in the future, sub-Saharan Africa can move forward with, you know, improved roads and all that. So in in California, we're still trying to address those issues, you know, trying to take stormwater and floodwater and store it in depleted aquifers and, and change how we manage reservoirs with these wet and dry cycles. And so, you know, this is the way it's going to be for many regions with the increased intensity of these uh, climate extremes,
1: uh, absolutely, Bridget. And, you know, and I think an important thing to remember, you know, is that a, a climate hazard, you know, has a, a climate shock component, and we certainly seem to see climate change exacerbating that. But you know, there's also aspects of exposure. I mean, so from the, the classic example, I think is if you look at real estate on you know the, the the southern coast of the United States where hurricanes strike. You know, you see these these big increases in the economic losses associated with hurricanes. And the, the, the WMO thinks that there's a pretty credible fingerprint of climate change on that. But you also have increasing exposure due to people. You know, like for the example in California is that if you look through the drought, you know, I think the acres of almonds planted, it's gone up every year. So you have this kind of bizarre perverse incentive where drought You know, the the prices for pecans and almonds have gone up. And so the acres planted for almonds (laughs) have increased, you know, drawing yet more water out of our aquifers.
0: Right, right. And the California with the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act are are trying to address that over the next 15, 20 years. And in the past, if you had a drought in California and you were growing a seasonal crop, you know, an annual crop, you could fallow. During that drought, Mm. the tree crops and these perennial crops, almonds and pistachios and things like that, you you can fallow. And so then you have to to irrigate, but so it can get quite uh, complex to discuss your book a little bit. I mean, I I really enjoyed reading it. I mean, very conversational and you learn a lot, but you're trying to put forward a couple of key messages which came across and resonated with me. Most of the time in the past when I've thought about climate change, it's always been precipitation trends and we really couldn't figure it out or whatever. But I mean, the impact of temperature is very important and the ability of the atmosphere to hold moisture. So maybe you can describe a little bit about what motivated you to write that.
1: Sure. The motivation for wanting to write the book began with some climate change attribution studies that were associated with the 2015-16 El Niño and then the 2015-17 La Niña and droughts in Ethiopia, Southern Africa, somalia and kenya you know basically where we showed that climate change essentially amplified the first the el nino and then the la niña you know impacting 50 million people 60 million people i wanted to share that story a heavy lift but i wanted to try to let people understand how climate change is working i i i kept hearing you know people asking each other whether they believe in climate change and i don't think that's the question That we should be asking a lot of the parts of climate change are things that we can all understand and you know one of them is the the link between warmer air temperatures and the fact that warmer air can hold more water and then the implications of that for both flooding and droughts you know this is something that quite literally we can sense right and so you know we all know that that when it's hot out you know that evaporation Goes up. We can all understand that in you know a warmer parcel of air, you know by definition the nitrogen and oxygen molecules are bouncing around faster. They move apart from each other, and that makes more room for water vapor molecules to to fit in between them. This is physics, right? I mean, there's just zero to believe it at this point, right? Going forward from that, that leads to some really you know profound repercussions one of them is that in you know the rainiest of of rainfall events <laughs> right we tend to see more extreme precipitation so you know every degree uh, of, of warming increases the amount of water in the air by about seven eight percent and that turns out to make a pretty big difference you know if you have an extreme precipitation event so and so this is something that shows up you know, really robustly, you know, both in climate model simulations and in the overall statistics. So Las Vegas this week is, you know, last week was flooding in Las Vegas and Death Valley, you know, and it can be hard with any one of those individual events to say that this is climate change. I mean, there are people who can do that. And, you know, there's some like interesting discussions in the book about modeling studies of, you know, hurricanes that hit Houston and, and how you can you do a a climate change analysis and attribute part of that to climate change. But there's just no doubt that in aggregate, you know, we see this increased extreme precipitation. When the atmosphere is dry, we see another very predictable and very impactful influence, which is that the ability of the dry atmosphere to suck out moisture from plants goes up dramatically.
0: And soil,
1: like this. Yeah, and soil, exactly, and soil, and soil, exactly. You know, this amplifies the the effect of droughts in terms of agriculture, in terms of rangelands. And then it also has a, and this is something that I learned during the book. I mean, so I finished the book, uh, my great editor from, from Cambridge came back and said, Chris, you've got to add a chapter on Australia because the, there had been the black summer, right? These incredible droughts there. Being the person that I am, I couldn't just write the chapter. I actually had to go and get the data. And so uh, I grabbed a bunch of Australian weather data and calculated dead fuel moisture levels. And so this is the kind of like the desiccation of dead sticks and logs. And It's related to the temperature and humidity in the atmosphere. You know, what I could do is basically test you know, what a degree or two of warming did to those dead fuel moisture levels. And it's really chilling. You know, I mean, what we're seeing with these fires all over the, the world is that, you know, when those dead fuel moistures drop below about 10 percent, that vegetation this is just basically like tinder. Right. And so when there's a fire, you know, and there's wind and there's, you know, these different things that cause a fire, which are complicated, there's very little to stop it. And we see this explosive spread. This, these kind of temperature impacts are really contributing to desiccation all over the world. And when it's humid and it's hot, right, that's also very dangerous for human beings because it's very hard for us to cool down. And so that's yet another kind of risk associated with extreme temperature.
0: And then I think another thing that comes across in the book is you know the, the the moisture holding capacity of the atmosphere. So then when it rains, it really dumps a lot of water. I mean, I know in California you get a lot of your rain from atmospheric rivers and extreme events. But what's promising is that we have an improved ability to forecast these things and understand them. And so I mean, it seemed to me like the drought that ended in 2017 was atmospheric rivers in in December, January, and. In in California, you know, so we either have too much or too little, which is very challenging for water resource managers and for food production and stuff. But we need to adapt to those challenges. And we do, I guess, in the water side, I think because we irrigate a lot, you know, and places like the eastern horn of Africa where they have very little irrigation or any part, most of uh, sub-Saharan Africa has very little irrigation. Then we're very vulnerable to the climate extremes.
1: Uh, And and I think water storage and irrigation can be, you know, certainly a big part of the solution. But there are also, you know, there are a lot of places in sub-Saharan Africa that are climatically secure. You know, like uh, Western Kenya or Northern Ethiopia, most of Tanzania, you know, uh, Uganda. I mean, it's not that there's not some moisture stress from time to time, but these places are generally climatically stable. I guess kind of cycles back to this development question, right? There there really should be a lot that can be done to intensify agriculture. And you have a lot of really low-yielding varietals that have not seen much improvement in the last 20 years. And it takes just as much water to, you know, raise a a mediocre, (laughs) you know, uh, harvest of maize as it does to get a really good harvest of maize. You know, if you have the right inputs and management practices. You know, I think there could be a lot that's done, and there are people working to, to try to do that, of course, to, to improve agriculture in, in places where it is climatically secure.
0: I think it was uh, Barbara Kingsolver who wrote Poisonwood Bible and stuff, and I think she moved from Tucson, I think, uh, to the Carolinas, and she said, I have no business living in Tucson. There's no water or whatever, and now she has her garden and all of that sort of thing. I think she wrote another book about that, but... uh, you know, most of us don't think about that and, uh, you know, development, you know, when we talk about all the, the food that comes from California, we're sort of proud of it. But why do we produce most of our food in the desert? You know, and World Wildlife Foundation had a report where they said could we move the Central Valley to the Mississippi, you know, <laughs> so, I mean... It's not just uh, physical aspects, of course, it's a lot of social and economic aspects that feed into it also. But when you talked about those climate-secure areas, you know, maybe we should consider more development in those regions and more food development, and then more movement from those regions to the other regions that are less climate-secure and challenged.
1: And and it's important to realize there are success stories, you know, out there, like I was telling you I had to call at seven this morning, and this is with some people from the, the you know the Gates Foundation, you know who've really invested a lot in agricultural development in Ethiopia, and you know are seeing some really big increases in crop productivity. FuseNet, by its nature, is always you know looking out for the you know the people who are most in harm's way, which can be depressing. <laughs> but, but we also have to remember that there's lots of people who aren't in that category. And there's lots that can be done, you know, to to increase the welfare of people
0: right and i think you know we're in a pretty tough situation these days with increasing energy prices fertilizer prices shortages and then also i was talking to some folks yesterday from united arab emirates and they were saying the workforce in the in agriculture has greatly reduced since covid also so mm-hmm. i mean you know people that can operate a, a tractor or whatever in africa and things like that you know So there are a lot of challenges these days, and food security is going to be a critical issue for for many regions. But I think what's really promising with your work then is how you can forecast and you're increasing the length of time that you can forecast, and then all this interagency cooperation and then funding from groups like USAID and and World Bank to, to help with these situations.
1: Yeah, I think it's really important to, to you know, if, if you think about climate change as expressing itself as a series of extremes, then you know that opens the pathway to prediction and adaptation. You know, so so here would be just one example. You know, one of the the things that I'm worried about is that increases in humid heat, you know, in places like Nigeria or South Sudan southern Tanzania, um, can impact worker productivity, right? Um, But but you might think that we could have pretty skillful forecasts of temperature, and, you know, systems to communicate that to farmers, such that heat advisories, you know, could be put out, you know, say, hey, we think it's going to be pretty cool for the next week, get out and plant, or we think that you know, don't go you know, watch out tomorrow because it's going to be really hot. You know, we're worried about extreme heat, but it's not always extremely hot everywhere, right? It's a hazard, but it's a hazard that we can try to, to manage.
0: Yeah, and so when I was talking to some folks yesterday, I was asking them, they're geneticists and they work in the agricultural area, could you take advantage of these long-term forecasts, you know, if it's going to be a drought or or it's going to be a wet cycle or whatever, but but it takes a few years to establish certain types of crops and stuff like that. you know, we were talking about cassava and and things like that. so as as we move forward, I think we will figure out ways to adapt to these things and then with improved communication with nearly everybody has cell phones, even in Africa, you know, so I think we'll be able to communicate the results more readily and people hopefully understand then what that they can do to adapt to these extremes.
1: That's right. We haven't really talked much about our, our friends in East Africa and Southern Africa, right? And so, you know, one of the exciting things for me is is working, you know, with the national net agencies, with the regional climate centers, helping them get access to, you know, a lot of the information sources, the forecasts, things like that, and linking them up with advisories. You know, we're seeing that already happen. You know, expanding that is pretty exciting.
0: Right. And satellite data and everything is just really helping, you know, provide coverage in areas where we might not have good ground-based coverage. I know Byron Tapley here said many years ago, you know, we could use the uh, vegetation responses like a precipitation network in, in Africa. because. <laughs> so there are a lot of different ways to to deal with things. Well, I'm really impressed with your work and I really appreciate your taking the time to write these books because, I mean, it reaches a much broader audience and even the simple graphics helps us all understand better the fundamentals and we can figure out better what's going on and try to deal with it. So I know you mentioned before you developed the CHIRPS precept system, you know, that incorporated satellite and ground stations. And now I I understand you mentioned that you are going to try to expand with temperature monitoring and stuff. So I think that would be very valuable going forward.
1: Yeah, that's our long term. I mean, we have a product called Chertz, cleverly enough. (laughs) And what's what's cool about that is that, uh, you know, if you screen out the clouds, you can use the satellites to see you know, the temperature of the Earth's surface. And it can really be useful in a place like Mali or Senegal or you know, Somalia, where you don't have any nearby air temperature observations. And so, yeah, so our long-term goal um, or intermediate goal is to get that set up and updated frequently, and then, you know, linked to weather forecasts. And so that would, you know, it's kind of where we would like to be in five years, I think.
0: Right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today and to the listeners then, and we will try to support uh, this uh, podcast then with a website that incorporates a lot of linkages to many blogs and everything that you have been doing recently. And uh, I greatly appreciate your trying to do so much outreach uh, in addition to the heavy lift of research. So good luck with your work, (laughs) Chris, and uh, staying in touch.
1: All right. Thanks very much, Bridget. This has been a really great conversation.